Chapter twenty seven, part five of Volume three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty seven The Wars of Italy. Louis the Twelfth. 1498 to 1515, Part 5. Next year, 1510, the mistrust of the Florentine envoys was justified. The Venetians sent a humble address to the Pope, ceded to him the places they but lately possessed in the Romagna, and conjured him to relieve them from the excommunication he had pronounced against them. Julius II, after some little waiting, accorded the favor demanded of him. Louis the Twelfth committed the mistake of embroiling himself with the Swiss by refusing to add twenty thousand livres to the pay of sixty thousand he was giving them already, and by styling them wretched mountain shepherds, who presumed to impose upon him a tax he was not disposed to submit to. The Pope conferred the investiture of the Kingdom of Naples upon Ferdinand the Catholic, who at first promised only his neutrality, but could not fail to be drawn in still farther when the war was rekindled in Italy. In all these negotiations with the Venetians, the Swiss, the kings of Spain and England, and the emperor Maximilian, Julius II took a bold initiative. Maximilian alone remained for some time at peace with the king of France. In October 1511, a league was formally concluded between the Pope, the Venetians, the Swiss, and King Ferdinand against Louis XII. A place was reserved in it for the king of England, Henry VIII, who on ascending the throne, had sent word to the king of France that he desired to abide in the same friendship that the king his father had kept up, but who, at the bottom of his heart, burned to resume on the continent an active and a prominent part. The coalition thus formed was called the League of Holy Union. I, said Louis the Twelfth, am the Saracen against whom this league is directed. He had just lost, a few months previously, the intimate and faithful adviser and friend of his whole life, Cardinal Georges d'Amboise, seized at Milan with a fit of the gout, during which Louis tended him with the assiduity and care of an affectionate brother, died at Lyon on the 25th of May, 1510, at fifty years of age. He was not one of the greatest, but one of the most honest ministers who ever enjoyed a powerful monarch's constant favor, and employed it, we will not say, with complete disinterestedness, but with a predominant anxiety for the public weal. In the matter of external policy, the influence of Cardinal d'Amboise was neither skilfully nor salutarily exercised. He, like his master, indulged in those views of distant, incoherent, and improvident conquests, which caused the reign of Louis Twelfth to be wasted in ceaseless wars, with which the cardinal's desire of becoming pope was not altogether unconnected, and which, after having resulted in nothing but reverses, were a heavy heritage for the succeeding reign. But at home, in his relations with his king and in his civil and religious administration, Cardinal d'Amboise was an earnest and effective friend of justice, of sound social order, and of regard for morality in the practice of power. It is said that, in his latter days, he, virtuously weary of the dignities of this world, said to the infirmary brother who was attending him, "'Ah, Brother John, why did I not always remain Brother John?' a pious regret the sincerity and modesty whereof are rare amongst men of high estate. At last, then, I am the only pope, 
cried Julius II, when he heard that Cardinal d'Amboise was dead. But his joy was misplaced. The Cardinal's death was a great loss to him. Between the King and the Pope the Cardinal had been an intelligent mediator, who understood the two positions and the two characters, and who, though most faithful and devoted to the King, had nevertheless a place in his heart for the papacy also, and laboured earnestly on every occasion to bring about between the two rivals a policy of moderation and peace. "'One thing you may be certain of,' said Louis's finance minister, Robertet, to the ambassador from Florence, "'that the king's character is not an easy one to deal with. He is not readily brought round to what is not his own opinion, which is not always a correct one. He is irritated against the pope, and the cardinal, to whom that causes great displeasure, does not always succeed.' in spite of all influence, in getting him to do as he would like. If our Lord God were to remove the Cardinal, either by death or in any other matter, from public life, there would arise in this court, and in the fashion of conducting affairs, such confusion, that nothing equal to it would ever have been seen in our day. Negociation Diplomatique de la France avec la Toscane, pages 428 and 460. And the confusion did, in fact, arise, and war was rekindled, or, to speak more correctly, resumed its course after the cardinal's death. Julius II plunged into it in person, moving to every point where it was going on, living in the midst of camps, himself in military costume, besieging towns, having his guns pointed and assaults delivered under his own eyes. Men expressed astonishment, not unmixed with admiration, at the indomitable energy of this soldier-pope at seventy years of age. It was said that he had cast into the Tiber the keys of St. Peter to gird on the sword of St. Paul. His answer to everything was, the barbarians must be driven from Italy. Louis Twelfth became more and more irritated and undecided. To reassure his people, says Bousset, to which we may add, and to reassure himself, he assembled at Tours, in September 1510, the prelates of his kingdom, to conduct them as to what he could do at so disagreeable a crisis without wounding his conscience. Thereupon it was said that the Pope, being unjustly the aggressor, and having even violated an agreement made with the King, ought to be treated as an enemy, and that the King might not only defend himself, but might even attack him without fear of excommunication. Not considering this quite strong enough yet, Louis resolved to assemble a council against the Pope. The general council was the desire of the whole Church since the election of Martin V at the Council of Constance. November eleventh, fourteen seventeen, for though that council had done great good by putting an end to the schism which had lasted for forty years, it had not accomplished what it had projected, which was a reformation of the church in its head and in its members. But for the doing of so holy a work, it had ordained on separating that there should be held a fresh council. This one opened at Pisa, November first, fifteen eleven, with but little solemnity by the proxies of the cardinals who had caused its convocation. The Pope had deposed them, and had placed under interdict the town of Pisa, where the council was to be held, and even Florence, because the Florentines had granted Pisa for the assemblage. Thereupon the religious brotherhoods were unwilling to put in an appearance at the opening of the council, and the priests of the church refused the necessary paraphernalia. The people rose, and the cardinals, having arrived, did not consider their position safe, insomuch that, after the first session, they removed the council to Milan, where they met with no better reception. Gaston de Foy, nephew of Louis Twelfth, who had just appointed him governor of Milaness, could certainly force the clergy to proceed and the people to be quiet, 
but he could not force them to have for the council the respect due to so great a name. There were not seen at it, according to usage, the legates of the Holy See. There were scarcely fifteen or sixteen French prelates there. The Emperor Maximilian had either not influence enough or no inclination to send to it a single one from Germany. And in a word, there was not to be seen in this assembly anything that savoured of the majesty of a general council, and it was understood to be held for political purposes. Bousset, abrège de l'histoire de France pour l'éducation du Dauphin, Ouvre complète, 1822, pages 541 and 548. Bousset had good grounds for speaking so. Louis Twelfth himself said, in 1511, to the ambassador of Spain, that this pretended council was only a scarecrow which he had no idea of employing, save for the purpose of bringing the Pope to reason. Amidst these vain attempts at ecclesiastical influence the war was continued with passionateness on the part of Julius II, with hesitation on the part of Louis Twelfth, and with some disquietude on the part of the French commanders, although with their wanted bravery and loyalty. Chaumont d'Amboise, the cardinal's nephew, held the command-in-chief in the king's army. He fell ill. The Pope had excommunicated him, and Chaumont sent to beg him, with instance, to give him absolution, which did not arrive until he was on his deathbed. This is the worst, says Bousset, of wars against the Church. They cause scruples not only in weak minds, but even at certain moments in the very strongest. Alfonso d'Est, Duke of Ferrara, was almost the only great Italian lord who remained faithful to France. Julius II, who was besieging Ferrara, tried to win over the Duke who rejected all his offers, and instead won over the negotiator, who offered his services to poison the Pope. Bayard, when informed of this proposal, indignantly declared that he would go and have the traitor hanged, and warning sent to the Pope. Why, said the Duke, he would have been very glad to do as much for you and me. That is no odds to me, said the knight, he is God's lieutenant on earth, and as for having him put to death in such sort, I will never consent to it. The duke shrugged his shoulders, and, spitting on the ground, said, "'Odd's body, Sir Bayard, I would like to get rid of all my enemies in that way, but since you do not think it well, the matter shall stand over, whereof, unless God apply a remedy, both you and I will repent us.' Assuredly Bayard did not repent of his honest indignation, but finding about the same time, January 1511, an opportunity of surprising and carrying off the Pope, he did not care to miss it. He placed himself in an ambush before daybreak, with a hundred picked men-at-arms, close to a village from which the Pope was to issue. The Pope, who was pretty early, mounted his litter, so soon as he saw the dawn, and the clerics and officers of all kinds went before without a thought of anything. When the good knight heard them he sallied forth from his ambush, and went charging down upon the rustics, who, sore dismayed, turned back again, pricking along with loosened rein and shouting, Alarm! Alarm! But all that would have been of no use but for an accident very lucky for the Holy Father, and very unfortunate for the good knight. When the Pope had mounted his litter, he was not a stone's throw gone when there fell from heaven the most sharp and violent shower that had been seen for a hundred years. Holy Father, said the Cardinal of Pavia to the Pope, it is not possible to go along this country so long as this lasts. Meseems you must turn back again. To which the Pope agreed. But just as he was arriving at St. Felix, and was barely entering within the castle, he heard the shouts of the fugitives whom the good knight was pursuing as hard as he could spur, whereupon he had such a fright, that suddenly and without help he leapt out of his litter, and himself did aid in hauling up the bridge, which was doing like a man of wits, 
for had he waited until one could say a paternoster, he had been snapped up. Who was right down grieved, that was the good knight. Never man turned back so melancholic as he was to have missed so fair a take, and the Pope, from the good fright he had got, shook like a palsy the live-long day. End of chapter 27, part 5